Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad we've got the opportunity to be together today and to look into God's Word. Um, We are in the tail end of a series that we began a few weeks ago on the initial phases of Jesus's ministry, a series that we've called Foundations, the groundwork of a gospel movement. And we've looked at Matthew chapters three and four in the foundational events at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. We've seen John the Baptist, who went before him as the forerunner in the spirit and the power of Elijah. We've seen Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. We've seen his temptation in the wilderness. And today we have come to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, where we will examine and look at his first message and the first actions that he did as his public ministry launched. But before we look at those verses together today, I want to just let you all know that my family and I enjoy going to the movie every once in a while. We don't get to do this all that often, but a few times a year, my wife, Kimberly, our son, Josh, and myself will go see a movie on the big screen. And when we have the opportunity to go and see a movie on the big screen, we always want to make sure that we get there early. Now, I'm pretty sure the reason why my son Josh wants to get there early is because he wants the popcorn. Honestly, we could save a lot of money by just getting popcorn and eating at home. Uh, But we have to get there early to get the snacks. But after we get the snacks, I want to make sure that we get into the theater early enough to see the preview of coming attractions. Anybody else like to watch the previews in the movies? Uh, We get together and we we line up as a family, and as each preview is shown on the screen, we will turn to each other and give it either a thumbs up or a thumbs down or kind of somewhere in the middle, right? We're like a modern-day Siskel and Ebert, and we we sit there in this this row and we we make these determinations on the film of what we want to see. Now, I, I share that with you today because when we look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25... I really think what we have, friends, is we have a preview of a coming attraction. What we have in Matthew 4 is a trailer for the kingdom of heaven. What will it look like when God's reign is established on the earth? We get a hint, a preview of that coming attraction in the early days of Jesus' ministry. And when we see this feature presentation advertised in these verses, my hope and prayer today for each of us is that we, we lean in, that we turn to one another and we give a thumbs up and we say, yes, I can't wait for that day. So without further ado, let's roll the projector and let's look at the events of Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. I want to begin by reading these verses for us. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there and, and follow along with us. I'm going to read these verses and then we'll back up and look at them more in depth. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, says this. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Friends, in these few verses today, we're going to see three things about the feature presentation of the coming kingdom. The first thing that we see is that we are called to reach the unreached. Reach the unreached. Now, where do we see that in the text? I believe we see that in the location that Jesus chose to begin his ministry. Where did Jesus go to begin his ministry? It tells us here in verse 12, in Galilee. Now, where was Galilee? This is a map of Israel at the time of Christ. At the very bottom of the map, you have Jerusalem and kind of the bottom center. I realize it's small from where you're sitting, but at the bottom center is Jerusalem. Galilee was this large area in the northern part of the country. Uh, Galilee was an area about 2,000 square miles. It was a place that uh, historians tell us in the time of Christ had between two and three million people that lived there, uh, gathering in some 200 villages. It's interesting, when we think of the region of Galilee, many times we think of it as kind of the, the bunch of hillbillies. Uh, that's how it's been described to me before. People, you know, the, the backwoods, local yokel types. But in reality, the, the area of Galilee had some wealth. If you've ever been to Israel or seen pictures of the region of Galilee, it was a, a beautiful area. It was a place where every kind of crop grew. And in an agrarian society, that led to some wealth. Even people who had homes in the, the, the Washington, D.C. of the day of Jerusalem, they would also have some places up in Galilee. Uh, it, was a, it was a nice place to live. Uh, the Sea of Galilee provided an industry with its fishing and other things. And so it was in this area of Galilee in the north that Jesus chose to set up shop to begin his ministry. Now, the question we should ask ourselves is why? Why did Jesus set up his ministry in the initial days in the land of Galilee? Well, I think that we can see a number of reasons for that in this passage and by looking a little bit at history. 
One of the reasons why Jesus sat there is, is told us in the beginning parts of our passage today. He went there after John the Baptist was arrested. See, confrontation was growing down in Judea around the people of God. So John and Jesus bringing the same message. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us Jesus at this point was even baptizing some in the region of Judah. And so it is down in this southern area where opposition begins to build, opposition that demonstrates itself and that John was arrested. So Jesus, in order to avoid an early confrontation with the Pharisees, moves up north. Jesus didn't go because he was scared of the Pharisees. He didn't go there because he was scared of Herod, who had John arrested. I mean, Herod had authority up in Galilee as well. Jesus went there to avoid an earlier confrontation with the Pharisees. There were miracles that Jesus wanted to work. There were sermons he wanted to teach. There were disciples he wanted to call. And so rather than having a conflict early on, he goes to the north where people are a little more open to new ideas for him to establish his ministry. One of the reasons why he goes there, I believe, is to avoid confrontation with the Pharisees early. But a second reason why I think Jesus goes there is to fulfill prophecy. Again, this is clear in the passage. In the verses that we just read, we see Matthew quoting from the, God, from the, from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, when he talks about the Messiah ministering, shining a light in the lands of Naphtali and Zebulon, in Galilee of the Gentiles. It was up in the north where the prophet said Jesus would establish his ministry. So Jesus going up north, shining as that light there first, is fulfilling prophecy. He's avoiding conflict with the Pharisees. He's fulfilling prophecy. But what else? I think Jesus goes up north also because he wanted to demonstrate early on that the gospel message, the good news that he was bringing was not just for the Jews, but was for the Gentiles as well. He wanted to highlight that fact early on in his ministry. You know, the land of Judea in the south was almost exclusively Jewish. Certainly there were other people there, but that was where the temple was, that was where worship was. It was very much a Jewish-centric place. But when you go up north into Galilee, it was a really a much more cosmopolitan place. As a matter of fact, the, the prophet calls it Galilee of the Gentiles for a reason. It was close to Gentile lands. It had a number of Gentiles that were there or would travel through there. You know, on this map, again, you see that red line that runs from the north up near Damascus. It runs all the way down through the middle of Galilee and then down the coast. One ancient writer would say that Galilee was on the road to everywhere, while Jerusalem was on the road to nowhere. What he meant by that was there's this major trade route, the way of the sea ran right through Galilee. In, in a sense, Jesus sets up shop in a very cosmopolitan place where Gentiles would pass through because his ministry was not for Jews only, but was for the Gentiles as well. So Jesus sets up his ministry there for that reason. Another reason why I think he goes up north to Galilee, though, is because he had some disciples that he wanted to call there. His disciples he would call by name. We'll look at that a little later on, but many of them lived up north. As many as five of Jesus' disciples lived in this little town of Capernaum. When you look at uh, the arrow there pointing to Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, that's where a number of Jesus' disciples called their home. 10,000 and a generous estimate lived in Capernaum at the time, 
Five of them become Jesus' disciples, including the writer of this book, Matthew. So Jesus goes to the north for, for all of these reasons. But, but what is the big idea? Beyond the, beyond the particulars, what's the big idea? I think the big idea is that Jesus goes to the north in Galilee to remind us that the kingdom message is for everyone. He, it is, is a message that is designed to reach the unreached. Jesus goes and establishes his ministry not on the road to nowhere, but on the road to everywhere because he wants the gospel taken everywhere. Friends, as I think about the implications of that, it makes me very excited to be a part of Wildwood Community Church. Because, friends, we are on the road to everywhere. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we are on the road to everywhere. Um, Think about the two largest industries we have around us two largest employers, two largest gatherers of people. Just a few miles from us is the University of Oklahoma, where every year thousands of people are drawn to that place. They're here for a season, and then they go everywhere. Just up the road from us is Tinker Air Force Base. People come there from all over the United States, and they're here for a time, and then they go to the world. What a strategic place for us to be in Norman, Oklahoma, between these two big engines, where we have the opportunity to be on the road to everywhere and to share the good news of Jesus Christ in this place. Why do we have a college ministry? Why do we connect with families up at Tinker? It's a privilege we have as a church. It's consistent with the heart of God. We're on the road to everywhere because Jesus wants through us to reach the unreached. You know, just a, a few weeks ago and on this stage, um, Stan Harwood was with us. And when Stan was here, he was, he was a student here at the, at the University of Oklahoma, and he came through this place, and he is now serving Christ around the world. We, we have the opportunity to be about helping the gospel go to reach the unreached I mean, I wonder, I wonder who among us God is raising up right now and is going to send out. Some he might send out overseas to, to distant locations as missionaries. Others he will send out uh, to your, your, your vocation. But everywhere you go, the gospel goes with you. Jesus sets up in Galilee. We're here in Norman. The gospel can go out through us to reach the world. That's true on a global sense. It's also true even on a, on a domestic sense. God doesn't give us knowledge of Jesus just so we can gather and share stories and be encouraged, though he wants us to do that. We share these stories. We're encouraged so that we can take them to reach the unreached in our world, in our community, those around us. We have the privilege of being used by God in that way. Jesus sets up in Galilee. We have the opportunity to be used by Jesus to reach the unreached as well. It's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see, though, is this. We are to repent in light of coming attractions. We are to repent in light of coming attractions. Now, we see that begin to unfold in verse 17. Verse 17, Matthew writes and says, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, and then he goes on. Now, it's interesting to see that little phrase, from that time Jesus began. This phrase appears just like this two times in the book of Matthew and really forms an outline of the book. In the first four chapters of Matthew, we've seen the presentation of Jesus, his identity, 
God introducing him to the world where you have his, his lineage and his birth and his baptism and the temptation all designed to reveal to us the identity of Jesus as Messiah, as the Son of God. We see that in the first four chapters. But then in chapter 4, verse 17, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to lead this public ministry. And for the next several chapters, from chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 16, verse 20, we have Jesus' presentation to the nation of Israel and ultimately their rejection of him. And then in chapter 16, verse 21, this same phrase appears, and what happens at that point is Jesus from that time, points his eyes towards Jerusalem. Upon his rejection by the nation of Israel, he now heads to the cross. So we have an organization of the gospel of Matthew in the major phases of Jesus's life. And Matthew here tells us that at this time, as Jesus begins this phase of preaching and demonstrating his power of giving this preview, what what does he say? His message Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, where have you heard that before? You remember? Who else said that? John, you guys were listening. John the Baptist, a couple weeks ago, we talked about this, right? Back in chapter 3, in verse 2, it says, John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does Jesus say? What does John say? They're preaching the same message. And not only Jesus and John, but honestly, if you go back and you look at the prophets, they were talking about this day when the kingdom of God would come to earth. It was a similar message. It was consistent. God had declared it in the past. He had, and John said, it's it's right around the corner. The king is coming. Jesus shows up and says, I'm here. Are you ready for it? The message of the kingdom. Now, what is the kingdom? The kingdom was God's rule come to earth. What's interesting is when God's rule comes to earth, not only are those who love God rewarded and get to participate in this kingdom, but also those who have rejected God are judged. Why is it appropriate that John and Jesus both say repent because the kingdom of heaven is near? The reason why it's important that they say it is because that's the appropriate response. Judgment is coming. You better repent now. It's almost here. Repent and follow God. This is your warning. Repent and follow God. The kingdom of heaven is near. The Old Testament calls it the day of the Lord. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. It was judgment that would come, and it is blessing that would come, but whether you got judgment or blessing was dependent upon your response to God. Therefore, Jesus and John both called out ahead that we are to repent, knowing what is coming. Not only uh, do do we see this announced, but Jesus begins to give us that preview of coming attractions. Jesus is is going to to begin to, to demonstrate what the kingdom of God will be like so that people would would long for it that they would understand what he was offering, that his claims were not just some vain words, but that the kingdom was really at hand. As a matter of fact, the disciples, after all of their ministry with Jesus, they were so excited for the initiation and the inauguration of this that in the book of Acts in chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, their last words to Jesus were this, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What that lets us know is that the kingdom has not yet been inaugurated on this earth. The disciples were saying, is it now? And Jesus says, no, not now. You've got a job to do. I'll empower you for that job until it comes, but it's not now that it's here. So what happened? The kingdom was near. Jesus was talking about it, but it wasn't fully inaugurated. What happened? Well, the the Jewish people rejected their Messiah. And so Jesus leaves. But what he lets us know is that when he comes back, at the time his father has appointed, the kingdom will come with him. So we who sit at this point, it's an appropriate message for us to in this day repent. But we are to repent in light of events that Jesus gave us a preview of in his ministry. Look at what it says of Jesus' ministry beginning in verse 23. It says that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But look at what else it says. It says he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Can you imagine that? He's healing every disease, every sickness. There's nothing too strong for him. Somebody comes with terrible cancer, they're healed. Somebody comes who's never seen and they see. Somebody's come and they've, they've never spoken and they speak. They've never walked and they jump. Jesus is interacting with those who are oppressed by demons and suddenly they are freed. Amazing, this preview of the coming attraction of the kingdom of God as Jesus begins to do these miracles. And so because of that, it's no surprise, verse 24 says, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. Yeah, no kidding, right? Somebody's doing all that, that that would certainly make the headlines. It says, so they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. This was a needy group that was coming to Christ, but he did not tire. He cared for them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Of course they did. People flocked to Jesus, because as he was demonstrating his power, he was giving just a glimpse of what it will be like in the kingdom. It'll be like that, but better. That was a trailer. The kingdom will be the feature presentation. When not just in an instant, not just in a moment, will there be that kind of healing, but it'll be something that will dominate the day. Isaiah chapter 35 talks about this, beginning in verse 3. It says, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the eyes of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Friends, in Jesus' ministry, 
we have a preview of the coming attraction of the kingdom. And the question that I have for you is, as you hear about Jesus' ministry, I mean, those who were ignorant were informed. Those who were darkened were enlightened. Those who were sick were healed. When you hear that described, you find yourself looking at each other down the row going, yeah, I am. I'm leaning in. That's what's coming. In light of that, we need to repent now and turn towards him. Because we, we live in a world, friends, that is full of distress, that is full of disease, that is full of pain. But Jesus has given us a preview of something better that is to come. It is worth it for us to lean in, to trust him, to repent, to turn away from ourselves and turn and follow him. In light of the coming attraction, let us follow him. The next thing that we see, last thing we're going to see today, is that we need to respond to the Savior. We need to respond to the Savior. Friends, we see this in verses 18 through 22 and the, the call of the disciples to follow Christ. Jesus goes into the, the land and he approaches these men and he invites them to come and to follow him. We see that in these verses. Now, what do we learn from his call that would help us as we understand what it means for us to follow Christ? Well, one of the things I think we learn from the call is that this call was a particular call. It was a particular call. Jesus did not just take out an ad in Craigslist and say, hey, whoever wants to, I'm having a meeting, you can come. He, he did not just put it out on the, the Twitterverse just for people to, to, to see and randomly respond to. But Jesus came and he approached specific individuals and he called them by name and he said, hey, I want you to come and I want you to follow me. It was a particular invitation to come and to follow Christ. Uh, Jesus invites four gentlemen here in this passage, uh, four fishermen, and he invites them to come and to be with him, but he calls them by name. Here is something I want us to, to think about. If you are here today and you are a follower of Christ, know that that is not by accident. It is by the intention and the purpose of God. God has, has come to you and he has said, I want you to follow me. He's come and he said, Sam, come on, follow me. He's come and said, Cheryl, come on and follow me. Martha, come on and follow me. Just as Jesus called the disciples, so Jesus calls the followers of himself personally and intentionally to come and to follow him. And if you're here today and you are, didn't walk into this place a Christ follower, but as we've been talking, as we've been talking about the light of the coming kingdom and, and the hope that is found in Jesus, if you find your heart leaning in, know that that's not my voice you're hearing, but it's Christ who is speaking to you today saying, Come on, let's go. It's a particular call that Jesus gives. Second thing that we see as we observe this call is the immediate response of those who heard it. 
the immediate response of those who heard it. It says that Andrew and Peter hear the call of Christ, and immediately they followed him. James and John hear the voice of Jesus, and they immediately follow him. Now, let me ask you, does that seem weird to you? I mean, be honest. Is that a little strange? I mean, somebody just walked, when you read it in Matthew's gospel, it sounds as though the very first time these men ever saw Jesus, the only thing they ever knew about him was this guy walked by and he said, follow me. They left everything and they followed him. I mean, that seems amazing, right? Well, it's, it's also not historical. That's not really what happened. Because Matthew in his gospel has a year gap. The events of Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, the end of the temptation, and the events of Matthew 4, 12, Jesus setting up his ministry in Galilee, there's a year in between those two events. Matthew didn't include it because in the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's not the, relevant to what Matthew wanted to say here, what the Spirit wanted to communicate through him. If you want the story of what happened in that year, you have to turn back to the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 1 through John chapter 4, you have the events of that year between the temptation and the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And what you see in that time is that Jesus began to get to know Andrew and Peter. Andrew's hanging out, he hears John the Baptist, somebody he trusts, somebody he knows, say, hey, that's the Messiah, that's the Son of God who will take away the sins of the world. And Andrew goes, that's pretty amazing. And he goes back and he gets his brother Peter, and he brings him to Jesus, and he said, hey, this guy, let's get to know him. Let's spend some time with him. And over a year's time, a relationship develops between Andrew and Peter and James and John and Jesus, so that when Jesus shows up on the scene and invites them to follow him, they listen and they go, but it wasn't out of left field. It was in the midst of a relationship. Now, here's where this connects with us. Friends, if, if you are, to, are following Christ, there was a point where that journey began. There may have been a period of time like these men where you began uh, to gather information about Jesus and you were curious, and it might have been over a summer, it might have been over a year, it might have been over several years, but there was a point in time where you were just getting acquainted for me, that was my, my growing up years all the way uh, specifically into my sophomore year of high school. I was just kind of getting to know Jesus a little bit. I was learning some stories. I was hearing some things. But it wasn't until Easter Sunday of my sophomore year in high school that I, I had that moment where Jesus said, not in an audible way, but it came clear to me in Scripture, to follow him meant to leave trusting in myself and instead to follow him. And at that, at that point, my journey began in anew, anew in following Christ. And friends, if you're here today and you've just been checking out Jesus for a time, maybe today is the day that Jesus is saying, follow me, and you have that as your day as you go when you follow him. For others of us, you can remember that time, right? You can remember the time when, when you decided after checking out the claims of Christ that you're going to follow him, and that was your day. For Andrew and Peter, James and John, there was a day that they followed Christ. Ultimately, it's an immediate response, but often it fits in the context of a relationship that has been cultivated. The next thing that we see is that they were called to respond to a person and not a program. Jesus says to them, follow me. He doesn't say to them, follow this book, follow this pamphlet, 
follow this program. Go to this school. He says, follow me. Follow me. He's inviting them into relationship. He's promising more than just something. He's promising someone. He says, I want you with me. Even in eternity, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place that where I am, you may be also. That's what he told his disciples. That's what he tells us. There's fellowship. There's relationship. We're invited to a person to follow Christ. Think of the implications of this and and the power of this. He invites them to to follow him and become fishers of men. There there are some in this room that that are, are extroverts, and that's not very... Yeah, that sounds fun. There are others of you who are introverts, and you're going, that's the most terrifying thing I've ever heard. We're invited not to just a program of being a fisher of men. We're invited to a person who's going to be fishing and wants us to join him. We get to go and be with him. We're invited into a relationship. I don't think that the disciples would have passed a theology test at this point. They didn't know everything about Jesus. There, sometimes people don't come to Christ for a long time because they feel like they need to know everything. They need to have every question answered. The disciples did not have every question answered, but what they knew was who had the answers. And they said, Jesus, we will follow you. Based on what we know, I'm gonna trust you and follow you, and you can fill in the blanks as we go. Jesus invites us into a relationship with a person, not just a program. Next thing that we see, This call demands a radical reorientation that comes with a cost. For whatever it looked like for these men, they were fishermen, but them following Christ involved them changing their lives. It involved them turning from what they were doing to who they were now going to follow. Donald Hagner in his commentary on Matthew says this, it says, the call of God through Jesus is sovereign and absolute in its authority. The response of those who are called is to be both immediate and absolute, involving a complete break with old loyalties. The actual shape of this break with the past will undoubtedly vary from individual to individual, but that there must be a fundamental radical reorientation of a person's priorities is taken for granted. When we follow Christ, we, we turn from ourself and our ways and we turn to him and we say, we're going to follow you. We're, that's not declaring our perfection, it's declaring our direction, our allegiance. Who are we following? Who are we trusting? Is our life ultimately centered on us or is it centered on him? The disciples followed, they, they turned. There was a, a radical reorientation and it came with a cost. Andrew and, and Peter, they left, they left their boat. They left their business. James and John, they, they left their father Zebedee. They, they left their boat. There, there was a cost that came along with it, but they followed him. And as we follow Christ, there are, there are things that we have to leave behind as we follow him. It's impossible for us to be the Lord of our lives and Jesus to be the Lord. We cannot serve two masters. Who are you going to follow, yourself or someone else? We follow Christ. We're to turn and to orient our lives around him, to follow him. And yeah, it comes with a cost. There's some things that we'll we'll leave behind. But here's the thing, friends. It is always worth it to follow Christ. It's always worth it. Let me ask you, was it worth it for James and John to leave Zebedee in their nets? Think about it. Was it worth it? 
Somebody say yes. Hey, thank you. I didn't realize we're just, just we're long ways into this message. I just want to make sure you're listening. Um, yes, it was worth it. It was worth it, worth it, worth it for them to do so. Now, we can say that because we have perspective beyond that day. I promise you, it, human nature being what it is, there were those in that day who watched what was transpiring that thought, he's crazy. What are they doing? What are they doing leaving this a successful business and dad and going and doing that? In the day, it is hard for us to see. Think about this. Most good investments can look crazy at the time, or they might not be fun at the time. You might, might just think of it that way. I mean, how many of you, it's really fun to save for retirement? Sorry, Gene. How many of you, it's really fun to save for retirement? I mean, you know, in the day, it's not really that fun. You could think of a lot of ways you could spend that money. But you know what? When you save for retirement, you're having a perspective that is larger than that day. We have to have a perspective that is larger than this day to see the value in following Christ. Because not only is it worth it to be a part of the kingdom that is to come, but also it is worth it because Jesus himself is worthy. There is no one else that is worthy for us to lay down our lives and follow. Everything else is such an inferior substitute. The question is, are you responding to the Savior? Are you leaning in? Yeah, we're thumbs up on the kingdom, but who are you following? For some here today, I believe that today could be your day. That You say, I'm in. I'm following Christ, that you would follow him. And for others of us today as we gather, that you would, you would say, I'm still in. I'm focused back in. In light of what's coming, in light of who's worthy, I'm gonna follow you. Friends, I want us to end our service today by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And I think it's especially appropriate for us to end this message by having the Lord's Supper because of something Jesus said when he instituted this meal for the first time. Jesus took a cup and he took a bread and he held up these things. He says, these are symbols of my body and my blood. And I want you to eat them. I want you to drink them when you gather in remembrance of me. But listen to what Matthew says about that uh, night when Jesus said this in Matthew 26, 26 to 29. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Listen to what he says next. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until when? until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Friends, we've talked about the coming attraction. We've talked about the kingdom. We're getting ready to take into our hands, and all who are followers of Christ, we invite you to take of this meal. We're gonna take into our hands symbols of the body and the blood of Christ, and we're gonna share in this meal as believers have for 2,000 years. But as we share in that meal together, we're gonna to share it with a reminder that these are but hors d'oeuvres of the feature presentation. One day we will get to partake of this meal with Jesus himself in his kingdom. We're following a person and not a program.